This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stunevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. So much going on, and obviously we're going to talk more about uh, the crazy silver trade. We talked a little bit about that already, but also a little bit more on uh, Robinhood and Reddit. Um, Keep in mind, though, as Tim and I just mentioned, we are seeing um, record numbers of deaths in the United States when it comes to COVID. In January, the worst month since the pandemic began, we see crisis talks over vaccine access going on in Europe. There's so much going on. So let's see what our next guest has to say about it. He is Sean Lane. He's the CEO of Olive, which is building a healthcare AI workforce. They're working with more than 40 healthcare organizations made up of more than 600 hospitals in over 41 states across the U.S. And um, Sean joins us on the phone in Columbus, Ohio. Sean, great to have you here with Tim and myself. How are you? And tell us about your team and how they're doing and how uh, the pandemic has impacted uh, your world. Well, thanks, Carol. It's good to be here. Um, Well, first and foremost, I mean, last year was an incredible year for for healthcare. I mean, under complete duress, you know, they already were disconnected. Um, you know, their systems didn't talk to each other. And then you compound that with the pandemic. And it was just a really difficult time. But, you know, we, we persevered, um, you know, all of as a company really, you know, started to engage with our health systems early to see if there was anything we could do. And we were helping them with all the administrative burdens, <clears throat> excuse me, all the administrative burdens that they were experiencing during the pandemic. So, you know, you can imagine, um, a rush of uh, right now vaccinations. It's a huge issue, and we're just trying to help them work through all the administrative challenges that they're that they're facing. How do you do that, Sean? I mean, this is something that we are seeing have a bumpy rollout, to to say the least. Um, how do you at all have help with that process and help get these shots in arms? So our AI workers can take on administrative tasks that are brought on by the vaccination. So in order for a person to get vaccinated, they have to be registered. Um, there's a lot of steps involved administratively. Take that and you multiply it by, you know, even in a, in a single health system, they probably have 20,000 employees. So multiply that administrative workload times 20,000 and then multiply it by over 300 million for the entire U.S. population. And it's just an incredible mountain of work. So all of this, we train all of to go in and do that administrative work, to fill out those registration forms, to check all the boxes necessary to submit all the applications so that it can happen more quickly. So give me an example. If I'm a patient, so what's the experience that, I, that I'll go through? So normally you would have to fill out a lot of forms. You'd have to um, take on a lot of manual processes. And then somebody who works at the health system would have to transpose all that into their system of record. You know, maybe it's an EMR or a registration system. In, in the case with Olive, you don't have to fill out all those forms. Uh, that registration happens automatically. Um, Olive is going to take on the, the task of filling out the forms and transposing it into the system of record. So saving not only patient time, but also saving the hospital workers an immense amount of time. Hey, Sean, how do you get hospitals on board with this, especially during a time when, you know, they are focused with their resources on getting people vaccinated? And in some in some cases, Sean, look, they're they're worried about paying the bills because they've had to give up uh, elective surgeries and the like. 
Yeah, that's absolutely right. So we, you know, all of is considered a critical infrastructure uh, resource. So all of is there to keep the lights on, to make sure the bills still get paid, to make sure the claims still get submitted, so that the hospitals are getting paid from the insurance companies. And since we're there, you know, working side by side, the human workers anyway, um, during the pandemic, anytime there was a huge administrative burden, they would turn to Olive and ask if we could do anything to help. So it was really, we were just, you know, in the right place, working side by side them anyway. So when these opportunities came up to help them with things like vaccinations, uh, we were there to move quickly. So, man, we would all love it to move more quickly when it comes to vaccines getting out there. Now, mind you, in some cases, it's a supply issue at this point, but in other places, it seems like there are vaccines, but it's just not getting out to people. How have you been able to maybe step in and help, or are you having any conversations on a federal level to maybe help within this process? So we haven't, we haven't been asked to do this you know, across the board from a federal perspective. Um, but, you know, initially we started by just really helping the, on, the, the frontline workers take on these administrative burdens. And then slowly we were, we've moved into more of the supply chain problem. And supply chain is a, you know, a complex logistics challenge. And oftentimes more advanced um, machine learning can help with that, right, to determine where the supply, where the supply should be, where can you store it, how to make sure you're meeting demand. So we're moving into the more sophisticated help uh, to get the to get the vaccinations out to who needs it. Uh, but ultimately, you know, the, the health systems get the, the right to choose who's helping them do that. There's not a federal mandate right now. Hey, one thing that's interesting about what you guys have done at Olive is is early on in the pandemic, you said you were going to allow re- workers to remain remote on a on a permanent basis. Um, what was the decision there, and 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 how are you thinking about that post pandemic? So, you know, as this started to unfold and we moved to this uh, remote, as we call it, a distributed work model, really, we just, our leadership had the foresight to say, we don't think this is going to be something that happens temporarily. We think work is changing. We think the nature of work is going to be changed forever. So we wanted to get ahead of it. We didn't want to be reactionary. Instead, we wanted to kind of determine and dictate the terms of how we would work. Uh, So we came up with a model called the GRID. That basically said from this point forward, right. you know, we're going to have a distributed and flexible system and we're going to let people choose where they work and across the country. And as a company, we grew from 180 employees to we have about five, six, 180 employees in January of last year. We're at about 560 today. And we wouldn't be able to do that incredible growth if it wasn't for the grid model. All right. We're going to leave it on that note. Hey, listen, um, Sean, thank you so much and look forward to hearing more down the road. Sean Lane, he's CEO over at Olive on the phone from Columbus, Ohio. This as New York new virus cases fall below 10,000 for the first time since December. So a little bit of upbeat news, Tim. Yeah. Nice to end on a little bit of good news. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic. From Bloomberg Radio. Look, Carol, I said it a few minutes ago. If you're a business journalist, the GameStop story is one that keeps on giving. And I got to tell you, I'm grateful to have colleagues like Annie Moss and Mr. Lena Gafapulu who are doing a ton of the legwork on reporting out this story. Uh, Annie Moss is investing reporter for Bloomberg News, and she joins us now on the phone from New York City. Hey, Annie, um, your latest story asks the question about Robin Hood's business. This is a company that has absolutely been the darling over the last year and even longer of many venture capitalists. But take us into the issues that it's had to struggle with this week as we've seen this unprecedented story play out on Wall Street. 
Absolutely. It has been a real whirlwind for Robinhood in the past few days. We just saw the company announce that it's raised another $2.4 billion on top of a billion dollars last week, which it will use, we're reporting, to post collateral at the central clearinghouse um, for the industry. Now, just stepping back for a minute, what's been going on is Robinhood was a key platform for users to purchase some of these meme stocks like GameStop and AMC in the past several kind of chaotic trading days. And all of that volume has put immense pressure on Robinhood to come up with additional cash at the central body that that clears trades in the industry. So that's all led to this kind of wild environment that we've been um, seeing and tracking in the past couple of days. I also think it's interesting, and we're going to talk a little bit more about this later on, about the role of Citadel. It feels like, you know, it's the Kevin Bacon of the GameStop, you know, fr- frenzy trading <laughs> and thing. Everything kind of seems to lead back to Citadel. Um, Citadel, as you note in your story, is a crucial piece of Robinhood's revenue. And it's kind of interesting that we're learning about kind of, first of all, how you clear trades and how it all works on Wall Street, but also these kind of interesting relationships, I feel like, between kind of smaller investor investing platforms and larger investing platforms. Yeah, it's really interesting to watch in real time because you take something simple like the fact that Robinhood put the brakes on trading for certain securities last week and has been slowly coming back from some of the trade caps that they put in place. You know, that moment really sparked anger among some of its users and they've been venting their frustration online about all of this. But you take something that simple and then Robinhood has been kind of rushing to explain like these kind of arcane market structure issues now like here's the reason we did it it doesn't it didn't come at the behest of citadel it didn't come at the behest of any other wall street intermediary this was a risk management issue but i mean that's a very hard thing to explain very rapidly to millions of users the citadel link is that citadel securities which is the market making arm um of or the a market maker uh Mm -hmm. that's owned by ken griffin is connected very tightly to Robinhood. And the connection is that Robinhood sends its orders to be filled, its customer orders to be filled by Citadel Securities. And Citadel Securities pays Robinhood to send those orders its way. And though although Robinhood, you know, does has a lot of these different relationships with different market makers, Citadel Securities is the biggest one. And this is so called payment for order flow, right? Yes. So this is, again, like getting into these more complicated kind of guts of Wall Street, but um, that is pay- is, that's the payment for order flow so, system. And- well, it's going to say, Annie, because we only have a, a, a little time left. Um, is there any concern that Robinhood's customers are going to start rejecting the Robinhood app after what happens last week? Because, if, you know, I got to tell you, seeing $3.4 billion pour into the company in a matter of days... Uh, tells me that investors are certainly believing in it. And we only have about 30 seconds. Absolutely. So it's VC investors are still standing by it. To see $3.4 billion pour in in just a couple of days is truly staggering. And, you know, it will have to keep its customers happy as well um, and ensure that they still believe in the company after after these kind of wild days we've just seen. Hey, just really quickly, 10 seconds. Has Robinhood lost any customers that we know of, the the retail investors? Some have defected, although there was one report today that said on Friday, right in the middle of all this mayhem, um, the company actually managed to attract 600,000 new app downloads, which is wild. 
Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, as Tim mentioned, this is the story that's going to keep on giving for some time. Uh, Annie, great stuff. You have just been spot on uh, with the rest of our team. Bloomberg News investing reporter Annie Massa on the phone in New York City. No, it's kind of interesting, right? You know, they're trying to stay true to their initial clients who gave them the m- momentum, Tim. But you do wonder about kind of these tricky relationships between you know, Citadel yeah. and some others. And very briefly, Carol, I got to tell you, um, other competitors to Robinhood are now saying, hey, we're no longer doing payment for order flow. We're going to try something else out. So they're trying to seize the moment. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. Tim, I feel like we've talked about a lot of things over the last week. We've talked about market collusion, market manipulation, you know, and kind of what it what it all means is we've seen basically hedge funds pitted against retail investors. So I guess, you know, we need to find out, do people think that the market was being manipulated? And someone who writes about it for Bloomberg Business Week is economics editor Peter Coy. He joins us right now on the phone in New Jersey, along with Business Week editor Joel Weber on the Access Line in Brooklyn. This has been, you know, Joel, a big part of the conversations we've been having, like, did the traders, the retail investors do something wrong? Was the market manipulated? Yeah, and that was why um, we asked Peter just to kind of dig into it and see what he could find. And and it turns out to actually be a really difficult uh, conversation and not one that... um, that I think the the you know the legal side of this there's a lot of interest in, but it remains rather um, mysterious still. So so Peter, as you as you dug into your reporting, what what did you learn? Well, see, it's not just a problem of the facts. The facts are in dispute, but it's even the theory that's in dispute. So I, I dug up a article that came out in the Yale Journal on Regulation in 2018, where the authors said that. More than 80 years after federal law first addressed stock market manipulation, federal courts remained fractured by disagreement and confusion about the most foundational questions about what, what manipulation even is. They say it may be the most controversial concept in securities law. So even if people could agree on exactly what happened, tick-tock, from the beginning of the GameStop and other stocks up to the present, they might still disagree on whether it was illegal or not. Right, exactly. So, well, what did you find out in having conversations? Because it's obviously not black and white here, Peter. Right, yeah. So there are things that are pretty clearly over the bounds. Like if you claim to be a buyer of shares when you're really secretly selling and you're just trying to take advantage of others, that that constitutes fraud. That's market manipulation. Now, if you buy and you start saying, good things about the shares as you buy. Well, a lot of people do that, right? That's kind of ordinary. Like, I'm really hyped up on the stock. I'm buying. I, I think it's good. That's, that can be either illegal or illegal. If you're doing it specifically with a goal of pushing up the price, that could be market manipulation. And, but that's only going to be possible if, if your voice is powerful enough to, to make a move. If, if I just said, I'm going to buy a, a share of something, nobody would care because I don't have any influence. But and, and then the, then you get into the question of, okay, something is new here. Robin Hood mi- changed everything. Hmm. And what, what it changed was it created a forum for, in which people who are singly, individually powerless are collectively powerful. 
So if they agree among themselves to do something, then what might have been innocent enough on an individual level could become perceived as market manipulation. Okay, so what happens then? I mean, what could what could regulators actually do, considering this is happening in Reddit forums and on the Robinhood app? They can, they can, and will not only study in detail what's being said, but what the players who are saying those things are doing behind the scenes. Um, they, the SEC has the power to de-anonymize the market data and target individual people to see what, what's happening. And there, there could be some big shadowy players here that we don't know about, mm. you know, hedge funds even, that are behind this action. And that's, that's the kind of thing they're going to be looking at. But even if it's not, there could be smaller players who could be uh, eventually prosecuted for market manipulation. Not saying it will happen, but it could happen. Peter, there's a term that I had never heard before that um, you include, which is momentum ignition. Right. Uh, can you explain that term of art? I Another name term. for a great garage band. I'm just going to put it out there. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good one. <laughs> Go ahead, I Peter. Mean, I liken it to standing at the top of a mountain. This is a, a good metaphor for today with all the snow we're having, and yelling boo, and hmm. suddenly an avalanche starts. All you did was yell boo. That's not illegal, but you kind of were cognizant of the conditions of the snow and you you should should have known or did know that this would trigger an avalanche so if the ski chalet at the bottom of the slope gets uh, crushed under an avalanche maybe you're responsible for it. maybe you ignited that momentum so peter when we when you think about where the the legal side of of the whole gamestop um conversation could go like you know right now it's really nowhere but but how realistic is it that this conversation could continue to to fester i i think uh, the sec as we know is looking at these cases now so it could be uh not that long before uh, well it could i don't know how long it's going to take them they're going to be careful about it but i can imagine prosecutions arising out of this hmm. Not to say everybody who's involved in this is culpable. No, no, but but there could be some people who are, and that's what they're going to be looking at very closely. Well, and I love how you likened it to what happened to the storming of the Capitol. Like, we have never been in an environment between social media where so much is documented and people, you know, gladly would put stuff out there of what they were saying, what they were doing, what they were thinking. Yeah, now I want to be careful with that because I'm not likening the people who are speculating in GameStop or AMC or wherever else to the people who invaded the Capitol. I mean, one case was a violent right. insurrection and one right. is playing with the stock market. But there, you can find some parallels, and one of them is this question of who started it and who amplified it. So, like, did Donald Trump incite people to invade the Capitol? He didn't tell them to invade the Capitol, right. but were his words um, enough to trigger it? And should he have known, given the volatile situation... Right. that this would be the result. That's a similar issue with GameStop. Well, it's a really smart read, and I recommend it for everyone to help kind of understand this situation. Peter Coy, thank you so much. And, of course, our thanks to Joel Weber. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes' Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. All right, you are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. First of all, just playing off of what we heard from Charlie, um, I was looking at those JetBlue uh, mini suites. Uh, what do you think? Two people. Uh, yeah, I'm all in. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when you get your vaccine, right? 
Yes, when I get my vaccine. But you kind of kind of love those little cubicles where you're kind of closed in. It's like kind of like a mini New York apartment. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. Um, feels that way. Uh, but you're right. When we get that vaccine. Um, headline, we just want to make sure everybody uh, saw Robin Hood in talks with banks and raising a billion dollars in debt. This is coming from Reuters. I mean, they've already been getting a fair amount of cash infusions here, right? It is remarkable, Carol. Uh, the company has raised an additional $2.4 billion from investors that comes after it raised even more money last week. So $3.4 billion in addition to what Reuters is reporting, this billion dollars in debt. Well, and listen, it spoke to what you said earlier, you know, for we're worried about, you know, people saying, uh, no, thanks, I'm not interested in using Robinhood anymore. Investors are interested in still pumping money into it. And we did hear that Robinhood uh, from Annie Massa saying that they, was it like 600,000 new yes. um, downloads of the platform? Yeah, it was at the top of the charts last week in Apple's App Store. And look, I think from the marketing perspective, it has to a lot of work to do from a reputational perspective yeah. after what happened last week. But look at the way that investors are being bullish on it. Those right. venture capitalists, are right. like, they want a piece of it. Voting with their money, certainly showing their opinion. So, okay, we have been obsessed with GameStop. Uh, we were last week. Uh, and I do remember we had guests reminding us that there were some really other important things that were going on in the world, including the pandemic, uh, earnings, uh, a massive COVID relief plan. And as Bloomberg New Economy Editorial Director Andy Brown writes about in his weekly column, we saw both Wall Street and Washington take some big steps on going green. Andy joins us with more on the phone in New York. Andy, um, good to have you here. Tell us a little bit about, you're right, there were so many things that were so important last week that were going on that really got overshadowed. And um, tell us about what you wrote about specifically when it comes to uh, the green movement. Yeah, so it just seemed to me that, you know, all of these day traders bidding up AMC last week was really detracting or drawing attention away from one of the biggest stories of our time. Um, Certainly, you know, a story that is is, is in the process of reshaping the, the whole global economy. And and it was so startling that last week you had this alignment between Washington and Wall Street uh, on net zero, that um, you had Larry Fink, who manages or something like or oversees something like $8 trillion of investment mm-hmm. um, coming out and saying, look, if you want our investment – you've got to start publishing plans to get to net zero by 2050. At the same time, that the incoming Joe Biden administration is announcing a raft of programs for a fully clean energy network and uh, carbon neutrality by 2050, in line with a whole bunch of other countries, not least UK, Denmark, New Zealand, and and so on, i.e., you know, the balance you put out, whatever you're putting into the environment in terms of, 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 of carbon emissions, you've got to take out net zero. But, but Andy, I, I, I do question the timeline here because 2050 is, look, that's a long time. That's 29 years. Uh, contextualize that for us because it, it does seem like a big deal, but at the same time, you know, that's almost three decades. Well, you're, you're, you're right. I mean, in some ways, 2050, yeah, never, never. Um, you know, uh, some of us may not be alive by then, but... Um, you know, on the other hand, we're talking now about pathways. And and Fink's point is, if you don't have 
a plan to get to net zero by 2050. You don't understand the biggest opportunities in front of business today. So that will include, uh, at, uh, a la the you know, Joe Biden plan, clean energy, but also includes uh, clean mobility. It also includes smart cities, um, everything that goes under this rubric of you know, net zero. So in his view, and, and look, he's coming at this climate issue. Yes, he has his own personal views, and it's informed by his own personal experience, like going fishing in Alaska and discovering he can't breathe because the, tund- because the tundra is on fire in Siberia. But he's coming at this from an investor perspective. He's saying, you know, company management need to be on top of the opportunities and the flip side of this, the historic risks, and not just the risks from, you know, rising sea levels and, and hurricanes and the kind of crazy whiteout snowstorms that I'm looking at right now out of my window in in New York, but also shifting regulation and reputational damage to companies that haven't figured this out. Right. It does feel like, and you guys at, you know, New Economy, Andy, I think are, you know, bringing this together, kind of the private public sector in terms of moving this forward and what we're hearing. And, you know, I remember a story last week that talked about the Norway, um, Norway Sovereign Wealth Fund. They dumped a bunch of oil stocks. They've been losing money on those investments. And, you know, that was a pretty significant trade for them. So we are definitely seeing this, a lot of momentum and a lot of pressure from the investment community. I have to ask you before you go, because we'd be remiss, knowing your background. You're a China editor, senior correspondent and columnist at the Wall Street Journal. You know China. Um, Myanmar, the developments over the weekend and what kind of response we might get from the Biden administration. How do you see it? What's key that you think our audience needs to know about here? Just um, just got about 50 seconds. Well, you know, um, from the perspective of, of China, China, of course, is extremely influential, uh, and it will back the generals every step of the way, um, as it has done. Um, it's hard to know from a U.S. perspective what the U.S. can actually do uh, in this situation. I mean, look, we're coming out of a nominally democratic regime that presided over, as we were talking about last week, genocide against the, mm-hmm. uh, against the Rohingya. Um, so what sort of democracy is it that we're defending here? Uh, and the personality, of course, of Aung San Suu Kyi, who is now a deeply ambivalent figure. Um, you know, so what are we, what are we defending here in, in, uh, uh, in Myanmar? Um, and it, and it's hard to know really what, what, what the United States can actually achieve, uh, beyond ritual denunciations and mm-hmm. messages of concern for the, uh, for the people of, of, uh, of Myanmar. All right. Going to leave it there. Andy, thank you so much. Always appreciate it and always thoughtful. Andy Brown, Editorial Director at Bloomberg New Economy, on the phone in a snowy, snowy New York City. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is 
the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Gotta say, I didn't see this coming, uh, the rally that we have. Uh, Not after almost, last week, right? Right? I, I really thought, and I thought because of the weather, it was going to be subdued, but uh, certainly not. Let's get to the drive to the close. Anne Maletti is back with us, head of Aqu- active equity uh, at Wells Fargo Asset Management. And she has, uh, they've got about, mm, sorry, let me just look at my number, numbers here, $603 billion in assets under management. And she joins us on the phone in Milwaukee. And I said to everybody, I've been back at the office for a couple of months. I'm back at home and I'm like, <laughs> I forgot how to do this. Um, how are you? I'm doing well, Kara. How are you? Doing okay. Doing okay. Uh, how do you see? I don't like, think you forgot what? how to do it. Um, I listen to you pretty often, and you got it. You got it down quite well. Well, thank you, thank you. Um, it's been a. It's been a crazy. It's hard to believe that already January is done in terms of the market environment. Um, how do you see it? How are you kind of making sense of where we are, maybe where we're headed? And do you feel like you have visibility? You know, it's interesting, Carol. We're trying to stay focused on the fundamentals. And coming into 2021, we thought that that's what's going to matter the most. Um, might have one more round of stimulus coming at us. And that would be good for the market in the near term. But after that, fundamentals would drive the market. And then here we have um, what's going on certainly last week um, and this week, which is, I think, taking people's focus off of fundamentals, off of earnings season, off of things that matter. Certainly, that's not what's going on at our shop. Our managers are focused on the long term and on fundamentals. But the near term is being distorted a little bit around some of this retail trading. Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine a, a company stock increase like we saw in GameStop, you know, changing the conversation about fundamentals. Um, so so what are you what are you liking right now in terms of, of companies with strong fundamentals? Well, certainly our managers have been focused more on the, the economic expansion and recovery that we expected, led by the stimulus, certainly, and we're seeing the, the numbers in the economy bear that out. Um, but then followed up the second half by broader scale vaccination. And so um, really believe that the economic data will look good and that will continue to bode well for the market. So industrials, financials were areas that our managers were getting into more broadly, small caps as well. And then the emerging markets look like another place um, that kind of got left a little bit more behind over the past 12 months, and our emerging markets and international managers continued to be very optimistic about um, the global recovery. It's interesting you said small caps. I mean, that's certainly been an area, you know, full disclosure that I've been interested in, too. And we've seen such a significant bounce back. Dave Wilson was just on, you know, uh, with his chart of the day and kind of looking at the run-up that we've seen so far. Does any of it start to make you a little bit nervous, nervous, Anne, or are you guys still feeling pretty comfortable about small caps overall and continuing their move to the upside? Well, I think what you have to be careful with with small caps is the distortion that you can see from events like what's going on today mm-hmm. or actually over the last couple of weeks, right? So when GameStop can move from where it came from to being the largest component of the Russell 2000 index and drive a big part of that performance, that can distort a lot of the returns that we're seeing. So I think what we're trying to do is pick through um, different industries and different companies and really try to figure out which companies have the strongest earnings, the strongest cash flow, the strongest balance sheets. 
um, and focus on those companies for the longer term. And you mentioned what what happened in the markets last week. I I wonder to what extent you're hearing from clients about that. I mean, are they starting to ask you about this stuff? Certainly. Our clients are very curious about this, wondering how it's impacting our managers today. They're worried about... um, Obviously, whether or not there's broader systematic concerns, mm. some of the things that you guys are all talking about as well. How long can this go on and what will be, you know, are there dominoes that are going to start to fall if this goes on for much longer? Those are the, the biggest questions um, that they have. And then certainly there's going to be some issues um, around the impact of performance. What happens when a stock like GameStop can drive you know, the Russell 2000, what happens when you're trying to manage money against that? You know, um, it's interesting. I mean, if you're buying an ETF of the Russell 2000 today or on Friday, you, you were buying um, more GameStop than anything else. And, right. and you know, may, that probably wasn't intended, but yeah. that was reality. Well, yeah. You know, it is interesting, though, about, you know, the role of retail investors and kind of what's happened in the last year. Uh, and their their role in the market. I mean, healthier market, do you think, Anne, if we've got more retail investors involved? And I know <laughs> it's hard to maybe feel that way after the last couple of weeks, but you do wonder um, the impact and, and whether it's a good or bad thing. I absolutely think it's better. The more people that have knowledge about the market, the better off we will all be. So over the past several years, as I've talked to my own kids and their friends, as they've been investing on, you know, apps like Robinhood and other things, they've learned a lot about investing in companies and investing in the market. But it's been, you know, small amounts of money, them really trying to figure out how to do research um, and learn about the companies they're investing in. That's different than what we've seen over the past week. And I think what I worry about, you know, when I look at what's happened over the last week is how many smaller retail investors will actually get hurt when this all comes to a rapid end and how many of those retail investors will we scare away and scare out of the market. That's actually not good for our business long term. I'd rather see more people in the markets, whether they're doing it on their own or they're coming to us for more professional advice. Yeah, I mean, but that when it comes to GameStop and the rise that we've seen there, it's it's hard to imagine this ending any other way. Um, and and we only have about fifteen seconds left. Yep. No, I think you're right. I I think everybody has to realize that diversification is really important in understanding the risks, and the risks are very high right now in certain names. And fundamentals. Like ultimately, it's going yes. to come back to fundamentals. <laughs> like if you, you have a business or and it's growing, great. If you don't and it's not growing, um, that's going to ultimately show up at some point. Uh, and good to hear your voice. Anne Maletti, she's head of active equity over at Wells Fargo Asset Management, uh, $603 billion in assets under management on the phone in Milwaukee. I forgot to ask her if it's snowing. Um, I know they got snow. They got snow, right? Yeah, I don't know if, I don't know if they're still getting snow. Yeah, or how but we're getting got. what they got. Yeah, and I actually just looked out the window and it looks like it is still snowing. Oh, yeah. Just in case you're wondering. Here, too. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.